Welcome back, everyone, to After the Sermon Ends. We know that after the sermon ends, the conversations can begin. Today, I'm joined by Pastor Marcus Donaldson and our good friend, Matthew Miner. How are we doing, guys? Doing well. Can't complain. Yeah. Uh, Marcus looked a little bit different this past Sunday uh, in the form of Brandon Bridge Farmer. <laughs> um, yeah, BB, as we call him here. Um, he came and preached for Marcus because Marcus was at a family reunion. How, how was the, the weekend, Marcus? It was great. <laughs> we, Tons of fun. Yes. We, we know families can be complicated sometimes, but um, getting into Romans chapter two now, we're finally done with uh, chapter one. Took us a few weeks, but seems like we're diving right in. Uh, BB preached through 16 verses, which is 16. humongous for us at SETI Church. But um, yeah, I guess I'll just give us a quick recap and then we can get into just the different thoughts. Um, the, the these This passage that BB preached on was dealing with um, those who judge and God's righteous judgment versus uh, our unrighteous judgment, where um, Paul is pivoting the perspective from um, the they in from Romans chapter one and the, the despicable things that they, the Gentiles do to now he's pivoting to you uh, referencing uh, the Jews and how they judge these Gentiles and their unrighteous actions. And he's like, how can you judge when you are doing the same things yourselves? And the, the despicable nature that is in them is also in you. And so BB just preached that we all have a desperate need for Jesus. And he, and he really hit hard on verse four about how God's kindness is meant to lead us into repentance. And it was not given for us to abuse it or presume upon it. Um, but we are to take hold of it as our only hope. And then he gets down into verses, you know, six through 11 about, you know, it says, for we shall be, or he will render to each one according to his works, which can be a surprising statement to those uh, of us that, um, you know, say that's by grace through faith that we are saved and how, like, how does this fit in? But it fits in the context, right? And he's going to render each one to his works. Um, and, you know, our faith, we are saved by our faith, but our works do matter because that that's what represents our faith. Uh, and then he, he finished off strong, and verses 12 through 16, talking about how just going back to um, that those who sinned without the law will still perish without the law, and those who have sinned under the law are, are judged by it. So how there is no one righteous, there's no such thing as a good person. And he ended the, the our time with a call response, and he said, like, there's one of three people in the room. There's, there's a person who is aware of their desperate need for Jesus and is constantly repentant and repenting for their sins. And then the other two are played out in the story of the prodigal son, where one just squanders all his wealth and, and needs to be saved, but doesn't quite know it yet. And then he comes back to the father and, and accepts that salvation there. And then there's the other son who is presuming upon the, the riches and the favor of the father the whole, the whole time. And, um, and they instead judge um, and trust in themselves and judge those that squander it and not knowing their own need for it. So that's just a very brief 10,000-foot view of, of BB's sermon. It was really, really good, covering a lot of material, but I'm anxious to, to get into it with you guys. So uh, we'll start with you, Matthew. What did, what did you get out of BB's sermon on Sunday? This is such a, an important part in Romans. It, it, Paul already establishes in the first chapter, like, God is God is is justice. He wants he wants you to follow what he has ordered you to do. 
and he starts by establishing this with the Greek, and then we go into the people that aren't Greek, the Jews that are there with them. And Paul clearly lists out, like, you will fail just as much as these Gentiles do, and you have no excuse. Your their, their excuse would be that they don't have the law. You have the law, yet you continue to go. What about you, Marcus? What were some of your thoughts from the passage as a whole? Well, uh, just in that initial part, what I was reminded of is Luke 19 with the, uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Both go up to the temple. Um, the Pharisee, he's making this like big show of his self-righteousness, right? Like Luke 18 in verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. And then we see this this Pharisee and this tax collector, the Pharisee standing by himself, praying in verse 11. And he, and he started like, this is his prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, like standing in the corner somewhere, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, verse 13 says, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the other, or but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And and so here I think we see we see what Paul's describing here in this person, this uh, moralist who believes that they're self-righteous, whether that be through their observance of the law or um, whatever ritual they go through or whatever they've done. I think, you know, maybe some like contemporary examples would be like their confirmation or their, um, they took the Lord's Supper or their baptism or whatever the case may be. And because they don't practice these like externally, uh, sinful things like very noticeable immoral acts. Um, they consider themselves to be above other people. Um, but this tax collector, the the one who walks away justified, recognizes his sinfulness and asks God to have mercy on him. Yeah. Um, versus the the Pharisee who, you know, is very self-righteous and and really just says, God, thank you that I'm not like the rest of these people. Thank you that I am perfect and righteous in myself versus the one who knows that he needs mercy. It's one of those that we as as we as in the universal we as the church always seem to, as B.B. put it um, in Matthew 7, we're trying to get the speck out of someone else's eye without taking the log out of ours. We constantly look at these, like we look at the world and we choose to judge the world when we should really be self-evaluating and correcting ourselves more than we need to be looking at the world and saying, this is not how it should work. We're called to go into the world to preach the, to preach the great commission, but we are not called to be a member of the world. In fact, we are called in first Peter to, to be aliens to this world, to be strangers in a foreign land, and sojourning through, following the narrow path. Yet we can we constantly look off the path and go down into the valleys instead of staying on the peaks. Yeah, and 
like that's been a condition ever since the fall. Like the first reaction of Adam and Eve was to to blame the other, and, or I think, yeah, Adam blamed the woman, and then the wo- woman blamed the serpent. Like it's just a it's a passing on of the blame, and like we're always quick to point out others' flaws at you know and and how they're uh, destroying themselves and how hyper- hypercritical that you know we can be towards others without recognizing, like you said, the log in our own eye. And I mean, it's just, it just comes from like this sinful flesh that we have that, that loves to elevate other sin and justify ours. Um, and, and, and we see very clearly that Paul's like, this is, this is the wrong way to do it because, you know, God's righteous judgment is going to fall on everybody and it's not like we have to make up for God's judgment just because he is uh, gracious in a moment and is not exacting punishment in that moment. Like it, it will fall on those who deserve it. Like there will not be one person who doesn't, uh, who, let me see. Yeah. His, his wrath will not fall on any who don't deserve it. So we don't have to carry that burden, but we, we seem to, to pick it up each time. Yeah. Any other reasons why, like you think that is besides just like the sinful flesh argument? Um, yeah, I think it is. We believe well, two things. I, I think that sometimes we fall into the uh, the myth or the lie that God grades on a curve, um, which is kind of what you were describing, right? It's like, oh, it's it's okay because I'm better than my peers. I'm better than the people that I know. Um, but the reality is, to your point, God doesn't judge people that way. Um, he doesn't grade on a curve. And then secondarily, I think that we fall into the trap and believe that we're the exception. It's like this is, biblically, it's adultery or it's murder, right? If you have anger with your brother or sister in your heart, you've committed murder. If you... Um, Look at a woman lustfully. You've committed adultery with her in your heart. Look, and the you know this is basic, and I'm not trying to just sweep everybody into this whole thing, but these are Jesus's words, um, and they really, I think, kind of reveal uh, the things that we often can't see, right? Because adultery, um, when it's when it's expressed physically, is very apparent, <clears throat> and. Right. However, in, in the heart, in the eyes and the minds, it's not. Anger the same way, especially um, in our day and age. It's like anger is one of those emotions, whether it's uh, justified or not. It's, you know, it's one of those things that we can like passive aggressively just kind of like circumnavigate versus uh, the reality that God sees the heart. He knows the heart. He perceives um, the motives. So we, we can't escape that reality that, that very often, not only do we, you know, we're, we're looking, we're watching the news and we're like, man, that person is wicked, they're unrighteous, and maybe we don't use those terms, but we're like, how could somebody do such a thing? And then we turn around and we are angry with our brother and sister. It's like, it's the, it's the same thing in the eyes of God. There's murders, anger, um, a lustful look is adultery. It's Jesus boils it down for us so that we can, I think, really start to deal with our own heart. Stop looking over the other 
uh, stop looking over the fence to to this greener grass, supposedly, um, and really start dealing with our own our own house. It reminds me a lot of when I think about grading on a curve. Something that always comes to me is uh, the story of David. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. And not only does he co- then commit adultery, he then commits murder by ordering yeah. him to go out on the front line and t- everyone else is take a step back. And God is rightfully angry with David. He sends the prophet Nathaniel to go tell him, you will be destroyed. You, not only you, your whole line. I will remove you as king as I did the person before you. Yep. And David... Truly, he mourned, ripped his shirt, put ashes on his forehead. All that said, I truly am the worst of the worst. And God, knowing David's heart, forgave him. Mm-hmm. Truly, that is what may, is the difference. God looks at the whole picture, the heart and the actions. Yeah. Yep. So we, we, he doesn't grave on a curve. Instead, he examines the heart and whether or not you have true repentance in that. So... With that saying, should we commit more sin, as Paul put it, by no means? <laughs> hey, we're not there yet, Matthew. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my mind went to the story of Jonah when he's going and preaching to the Ninevites, and the and they do repent, which, I mean, it says in verse 4, it's like his kindness is meant to bring us to repentance, and that's that's God's goal, but that wasn't Jonah's goal. Like, he he's like, he's like I didn't want to go preach to them because I knew you were going to be, like, forgiving and gracious to them. And... And that, that is just a, such a, I guess, presumptuous or just, um, yeah, presumptuous attitude to have. And he's taking God's grace for granted there. It's like he only wants the favor for himself and his people and, and not on these people that he thinks he's better than. And, like, how often can we do that in our own lives of, you know, we, we see somebody, like, wrong us and and they're trying to repent and be made right with God about it and we're still holding that that unforgiveness is like, that doesn't do anything to them because ultimately they are forgiven by God, but it only hurts us. Yep. Yeah, there's a Matthew West song called forgiveness. It's all about how difficult it is to truly forgive someone. Even if they fully are like repentant of it, it is so difficult to forgive. Yet Christ calls us to do this constantly. Like when Peter goes to Jesus and says, how many times should I forgive my fellow brother? And then it turns out to be seven times, 70 times, yeah. otherwise known as forever. <laughs> right. As many as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So let's jump down here to verse six in where, where it's talking about he will render to each one according to his works. Um, like, Marcus, where, where does that fit into uh, the context here? I mean, like he's going to render each one to his works. I know he, like Matthew mentioned it about how he, he looks at both the heart and the works. Um, but yeah, how does this fit? Yeah, tying back into uh, verse five, but because your hard and impenitent heart, or heart, you were. Let me just start that over. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So now, verse six, He will render this in the, on this day of wrath on this um, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. Um, so it's, you know, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in November. There's a story of a um, an agrarian society, um, rural farming community, and this one guy, he's plowing his fields right outside of a church, um, clearly trying to make a 
commotion and disrupt the service. He wasn't a believer. Um, and they're, they were asking him like, Hey, can you stop? Um, and he's like, no, you know, I've some of the best, um, harvest records in the County or wherever they lived. And, you know, they're writing this to, uh, to a newspaper. And he's like, you know, if, if God wanted me to stop, then he would take away my harvest essentially. And the newspaper editor responded with that, that God doesn't settle all of his accounts in November. There will be a day when every person will stand before the Lord in judgment, who God the Father appointed to judge um, the living and the dead. And the those who are in Christ, like you said at the beginning of this, this judgment, um, our deeds, our works are the evidence, not the justification, not the the basis of um, eternal life, right? That's through Christ and Christ alone uh, for the forgiveness of sins. But our works, evidence, salvation, they are the necessary consequence of salvation. And it's not the, you know, the, the Super Bowl real, like, you know, your Christian resume that God's looking at. It's, it's how are you, are you living your life? There's not this like tit for tat. Oh, I've done you know, I, I've sinned greatly this weekend, so now I need to go and pray and serve and give and do all the things. It's it's not a tit for tat. It is, again, down to the heart. Um, in this, in the, our works should be the evidence of genuine genuine salvation, um, genuine heartfelt service to the Lord who saved us. Um, and then for the unbeliever. It'll be the same, right? Judgment for the works. Those who have never heard the gospel, those who have never had a, a chance to respond to the good news of, of Christ, they will they will be judged for their works as well. And and here's the reality, right? Um, and he breaks it down in the, the verses that follow. But works, no matter if you've heard the gospel or not, are they are insufficient to save. They are insufficient to atone for sin. No matter who you are, what time you lived in, where you've come from. Works never um, earn salvation. You cannot earn it. Or else, you know, why would we go and preach the gospel um, to people who have never heard it? You know, we would just try to rely on their works. Anyways, they're insufficient, so we do. And we've been commanded to, so we obey. Um, but they, So they'll still receive judgment if they are apart from Christ. Um, but then you can go into, like, levels of suffering in eternity. Um, uh, but I don't know if we're trying to go the Da Vinci code route. Um, <laughs> so th- this honestly reminds me of a book I was reading this week. You know, God always seems to have an interesting set of circumstances that sets up um, stuff that happens. But I read this book this week. It's called Deep Undercover. It's all about a KGB spy who lives in America and he ends up like staying in America because his heart, uh, he has a child and loves this child, so he chooses to stay. And as the book progresses, it shows that throughout all time, throughout all of his experience, God has been guiding him in this one direction, leading to his ultimate um, salvation. And it's his salvation comes after like an absolute destruction, a fallen alcoholism, like all of this. But then he finds God when this lady tells him this statement. You don't know it yet, but you already act like a Christian. It's like God works in everyone's heart before they actually go into 
profession professing <laughs> yeah um and also with verse six it just it reminds me a lot of james which i think james was a great book to go through before this with the uh with james saying um show me i will show you my faith by my works it's not that the works save you but it is that this is the fruit that is produced and so if it's like a in christ when he uses the parable that if a, a fig tree doesn't produce olives and an olive tree doesn't produce figs. It's like if you produce wrong fruit, then you will be cast out. So, yeah. Another thing I, I forgot to mention in an earlier verse, I love when Paul uses like the the sarcasm. It's like, um, yeah, I love the par- it parallels the book of Job where God sits... Uh, where Job sits down and God's like, where were you when I built the foundations of this world? It's like Paul is like, but for you hypocrites. <laughs> just I love that when Paul uses that. Paul, Paul actually uses this multiple times throughout multiple letters where he uses this like slight bit of sarcasm to, to get at the church to make them really evaluate themselves. Yeah. Nice. Anything else there on 6 through 11? All right, jumping down to verses 12 through 16 here, uh, talking about how that, you know, even though the the Gentiles are not under the law and they don't have that revelation, that they still have the the moral law in them. Like we've talked about it before with the, the general revelation from um, chapter 1, uh, but here, like, it's, it's just giving evidence to how the law still judges them um, or they're still condemned under the law, even though they don't have the, the revealed law that judges them specifically. And, and the evidence is how they live about how they, they justify themselves when they do rightly and they condemn other, the other people around them when they do wrongly, you know, murder was still a um, mostly universal heinous act back then. And, Everybody was in agreement about it, no matter if they were Jew, Christian, or just Gentile, barbarian, whatever it was. Um, like they had this moral law and they acted according to it. Any thoughts there? No, we see it today. Um, even the unredeemed heart has a has a a conscience that tells them that things are wrong, um, and obviously these can be. Um, our consciences can be seared. They can be stifled, ignored, or even like uh, to the point where they become irrelevant. But it's there's something in every person that tells them things like murder is wrong. Um, in every society, even the most corrupt, it's it's like eventually, I think what we see is that societies um, they justify it, right? So, for example. Um, we look at atrocities like the Holocaust. We look at atrocities like uh, the genocides in Africa that are still happening today or, or the slave trade. Um, we look at it, it, the atrocities in, in human history. And at some point or another, in most, like generally speaking, there's, there's an effort to dehumanize these people, whoever they are. Um, Slaves subhuman, Jews subhuman, um, and it's like obviously 
that's not true. But if you can dehumanize your perceived enemy, um, you get people on board a lot quicker because they know they have an issue with killing another human being inherently. Um, and that's, that's relatively consistent um, throughout just some of the examples that I know of. It's like once you dehumanize things like murder, um, become increasingly accepted or subjugation or oppression or whatever it may be, um, become more widely accepted, more easily embraced um, because there's perceived benefit from exterminating these subhuman beings um, from the world or from a society. And, and that's how you justify genocide or slavery or whatever the case is because your conscience is telling you, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. These are humans. But you ignore it, you suppress it, and you strip away the label that, that would indicate, hey, this isn't right. Yeah, and for me, it makes me think of uh, C.S. Lewis has a book. It's his first in a space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet. C.S. Lewis presents this. There are universal laws that are set out throughout all of creation, and the devil has gone through and has broken some, but he has bent slowly yeah. some others. Yeah. Because the bending of those, he can't break them, but by bending them into such a position that they're no longer relevant. So say that in this example is you uh, you cannot kill any other human. Well, okay, we'll just change what is a human. Right. And we will dehumanize that out. Right. So in the book, um, C.S. Lewis puts it that they're for the broken ones, they can be mended, but for the bent ones, it's a lot more difficult to bend them back in the shape yeah. than it is to break it and put it back together. Yeah. For those keeping track, there's Matthew's C.S. Lewis reference for the day. <laughs> um, yeah, and something I was looking at this morning was verse 15, where it says, They, the Gentiles, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And I was kind of confused looking at this, thinking that, you know, how does their their conduct and their conscience excuse them? But really, like, it's more of a self-justification than it is right. any type of righteousness or salvation there. Um, but, you know, we see that the, the work of the law is, is written on their hearts, not the, the law of the new covenant of God, right. but it's this... The, this moral law that is written on everybody's heart and they, they act according to it and they, they justify themselves or they condemn themselves um, either themselves personally or others around them. And like I, I was reading a commentary about how like the civil societies and the governments of that day, like are, are just evidence that there is morality and God is, is at work in those, in those things. Like he is the one that establishes that by his character. Right. Yeah. Even going back to the 10 commandments, it's like, these, um, you know, they wouldn't acknowledge Yahweh, but they would. They had similar commandments or similar laws in place to preserve the society, which, you know, when we talk about, like, did they copy or did Moses copy? Um, when, you, when you dig that hole, when you start going down uh, that path, you realize that there was maybe some understanding of the laws of these other societies that had very similar laws. Um, but the, the distinct nature um, of the basis for those laws, right? Like God giving them to Moses on Sinai. Um, it, it makes it unique and exclusive to 
uh, the people of Israel. And, and it couldn't be a copy, uh, not just because of the source, but how, how universal they are. Um, and then really how even further than that, how specific they get with the Mosaic law, um, on top of that, that came from that, which, you know, we could talk about the, the law, but anyways, all of that was to point people, uh, to their need for forgiveness, their need for the Messiah, it, regardless of what society. So in, in every society, like you're saying, God works through these things. There, here are these laws that are are almost universally applied in, in every ancient society, even to today. Um, it's like because God is, is trying to show people that we are wicked and, and we need uh, we need Jesus. We need to be uh, redeemed, we need to be forgiven, we need to be born again, um, which only he can do. It's like sure. Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but I came to save the world. It's one of those that we can look at all the Bible from when Cain killed Abel, there were these universal laws set out. And as we progress through the Bible, it's written, and then we see by this, by the by the letter of the law, we are unjustified and deserve damnation. Yeah. But God, in his infinite love and kindness, has chose to save us through grace, through faith. And it's just one of those things that... The, uh, the uh, BB sermon at the end is like one of those that felt like he ran a marathon throughout the whole thing. Because it's like, how much do we constantly go through this and fall into these same pitfalls and valleys? Yeah, shout out to Big Daddy Blaze for taking on 16 verses. He didn't even blink. I was like, man, you can... You know, you can break it up, and I'll pick it up wherever you leave off. And he's like, "No, nah, I got it." <laughs> okay, <laughs> praise God. Yeah, shout out. Um, yeah, so let's just pivot in the last few minutes here towards um, just some practical application. Maybe like people that were listening to this sermon, like I mean, myself included, um, you know, were convicted by their the, the our hypocritical nature. I was going to say hypocriticalness, but I don't think that's grammatically correct. Um, but hypocritical nature and, and judging others and like how, how I can be hypercritical, um, towards other people, but, um, really just try to justify, justify myself. So like, like what is a person to do in that situation? Yeah. I mean, I think fundamentally keep the attitude of the tax collector, right? Like have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, we, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's, through Christ and Christ alone, it's through God's grace, um, through faith alone that that we receive His divine grace and mercy. Um, but it's in in my opinion, what we see in in Luke um, in that parable is one guy is looking over the fence, right? He's looking at his peers and like, God, thank you. I'm not like these wicked people, and the tax collector doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Like he's, he's so introspective. Um, he's concerned with, with himself and his own sin. Now there becomes a point where it's like, you know, it, it says remove the log from your own eye before trying to remove the speck from your brothers. Um, and I don't think we ever get rid of that log entirely. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't try to remove the speck from our brother's uh, and sister's eye. Now, if they're in Christ, different story, right? It's like 
like, yeah, we should be pursuing holiness together, accountability and support. It's like we, we need to uh, be humble. We need to deal with our sin first. We need to um, have accountability and support in our own lives, which I think busts that self-righteous bubble when you have somebody calling you out on your sin um, that you're trying so aggressively to hide. Um, But we also do the same for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how God uses those relationships to, to sanctify us, to grow us in our knowledge and love for the Lord, for um, increase us in, in Christ likeness. Um, So yeah, stop, stop looking over the fence at the world and saying, man, they suck and I'm really good. Thank you, God. Um, Be like the tax collector, have mercy on me. Know that, that you're a sinner in, in need of God's mercy and grace. Strive for holiness, live in accountability and support. Um, stay in the word in prayer. Then to, to build upon that, uh, calling back to last Sunday, it's like we look at the world. We're not to support the world, Yeah, but that does not mean that we are the judgment of this world. Christ, the Lord alone, has the power of judgment. We are called into the world to spread the good news that there is a way out of judgment. But we, so as so many Christians, look around the world, look around even the United States, and go, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, and condemn it. And then we spend all our times focusing on this, right. the, the condemnation of that, instead of how to better communicate the gospel to them. Because at the end of the day, it is the Lord that will do all the work. Yep. There's a reason why no man-made kingdom has ever survived. No matter how many times they say it's in Christ's name, it doesn't matter. The, an earthly kingdom established under earthly principles will fail 100% of the time until the day that God brings his heavenly kingdom to earth. Yep. Interestingly, there's only, well, well two things. Matthew hit on, like, the crux of my issue with um, the way modern Christianity engages the world, right? We go at the fruit and not the root. Um, and, and I just think that that's a, you never win that battle. You never make any progress. As soon as you, you know, you're painting the roses red versus like fixing the root that causes white roses. Um, And and painting the roses red, one, never makes them red. And two, um, is deceiving, right? It's like, it's not the true thing. It's not what you're going for. So, you know, if we have a a better society, a more moral society. I think that there are those who hope that people will just naturally fall into obedience, um, naturally fall into saving faith in Christ. And I just don't, I just don't see that in scripture, but then secondarily, um, when, when we talk about, uh, nations, right, there's, and I agree with Matthew, there's no man-made nation that, that has ever lasted. Um, you look at, Babylon, you look at Persia, you look at um, Rome, and and we say here in America that we're one nation under God, but God established a nation, the nation of Israel. And that's like, you don't hear of the Hittites, the Ammonites, the Jebusites, the all the ites, the, you know, every all these other nations that were around, but you do hear about the Hebrews, you do hear about Israel, you do hear about this nation that God said were his chosen people um, still around today. So all that to say, you know, we can say that we're one nation under God. Um, We could say that we're a Christian nation. I would fundamentally disagree. 
And I would also say that God establishes his nation, and he has. Man doesn't say, God, we're your nation, right? Like, God chose a nation, um, and salvation came through that nation, and yeah. One last thing to build on that. You're good. Um, it reminds me of First Samuel when the people of Israel say, we want to be like everyone else. We want a king. <laughs> we want a king. We want a king. God... Samuel then goes, this, this is what's going to happen. Right. He's going to take taxes. He's going to take yep. your sons, your daughters. Yep. He's going to do all of this. Do you truly want this? And then everyone goes, yes. And Samuel's like, you guys are idiots. Yes. <laughs> and God goes, give it to them. Because they are not mad at you, but instead they are mad at me. And so God then warns them again. So he elects a king. And the king to start out looks great. But then the king falls away. The king falls away, and God then goes, you will no longer be king. Instead, David will be king. And he establishes David. So just as God can elect kingdoms, he can remove kingdoms. So, which I think sums into this so well. Yeah, that's good. Well, that was a great conversation. Appreciate both of you all being here. Listener, you can be praying for myself and Matthew and Taylor. We are heading off today to go to kids camp up in Lookup Lodge in South Carolina. Um, pray for all the kids and um, just that the Lord would be speaking to these hearts this week and that lives would be changed. Also, shout out to Kelly and Nathaniel Mercer. Yeah. Um, yeah, Kelly Ke- not Sloan. Yes. Uh, they, Kelly not Sloan. <laughs> <laughs> they, they got married this past Saturday. It, me, me and Matthew and a few others were, were up there. Um, Todd was officiating. It was a, it was a great time, uh, really exciting in the life of our church here. Uh, but listen, we pray that you are blessed by this conversation. You can, um, you can find us on Sundays at city church in Gainesville at 10 AM, but until next time. Oh.